0: We got some debate about that before we started, but that's correct. Um, So today I have Kelsey Petty. She's one of our therapists here. Um, She's a licensed social worker, LMSW, correct? Um, So we're excited to have you. And we're going to talk about anxiety. So for those of you listening, um, you know, this is something we haven't covered in depth on the podcast, so we're going to do that today. But the reason is because I think over the last 10 years, we've seen a huge increase in anxiety disorders, you know. Um, just anxiety in our children, anxiety in general and uh, across the culture, um, but especially since covid, I think there was already a problem with anxiety that we were we were dealing with, and really just treating symptoms a lot, whether medication or breathing techniques or whatever um, so today we're going to talk a little bit about root causes in children and adults, and then um, we're going to try to you know kind of talk maybe talk about the pandemic a little bit and maybe how that fear is exacerbated what was Lang dormant are already there and, and then social media and blah, blah, blah. So we'll get into all of it. But anyway, uh, welcome Kelsey to the podcast. So kind of intro, uh, who you are and, and what you do here for us and then in general.
1: Okay. Yeah. Kelsey Petty, LMSW, working towards my LCSW, licensed clinical social worker. I have been working for Clint Davis counseling for one year tomorrow. Yeah. Isn't that crazy? That's awesome. Yes and um went and got my master's degree at loyola university in chicago i born and raised in chicagoland only moved here in the last um year and a half so yeah. louisiana is new to me
0: dealing with all this southern charm and so uh...
1: yes and the southern heat <laughs> this summer um
0: well it just got hot i mean you know we were talking about this yesterday that june this is the first time i think in my entire life of being in louisiana most of my life that June was as soon as I've started complaining. You know, it's typically way earlier. So we've had a good summer. Yes, I mean I remember in Bozier, this was like four or five years ago. We had like a hundred and something days of over a hundred degrees. It was like a record. So Uh, yeah, Yeah. miserable. Chicago's not like that.
1: It's not like that at all. But we have cold winters, so it's a nice change of pace.
0: Oh yeah, we wind tremendously when it's like you know fifteen degrees outside. Yes, I think it's the Arctic.
1: That's right. Yes. Um, So when did I know I wanted to be a social worker? I would say I've always been pretty passionate about social justice, advocacy, speaking up for the oppressed. Um, And so when I started university, what that meant to me was that I was gonna go to law school someday. Mm. I always thought I'd be an attorney, I would advocate for people within the criminal justice system or the legal system. And I think as I immersed myself into that world, I quickly learned um, how complex those systems are and how slow they are to change. Yeah. And so my perspective shifted to working with families and individuals to see um, quicker change, I guess, or change um, not within a really complex system. Mm-hmm. Um, so my heart for social justice really lined up with social work and I got my master's in, um, in social work and always knew through that program I wanted to work with kids um, my specialization in grad school was to work in a school, um, so learning about working with kids in that system. Um, and my mom is a social worker and um, works with people who've experienced domestic violence, and I've seen how fulfilling her career is to her as well. So I think that's what pushed me kind of into this field.
0: Yeah. And you, you're married and you have two little girls, right?
1: Two little girls, <clears throat> three and 18 months.
0: So you're in the midst of it.
1: In the midst of it, in the trenches. Yeah keeps me busy but it's a lot of fun too
0: so tell us a little bit about um you know one of the things we talked about before and have talked about is kind of our own people ask all the time as counselors you know do we struggle with things can you talk a little bit about kind of your story with anxiety or anything like that
1: sure i would i would probably categorize myself as an anxious kid who grew into an anxious adult, <laughs> um, but was equipped really well with ways to manage that. Okay, I think we'll get in today a little bit about who is p- kind of predis- predisposed to anxious thinking and anxious nervous systems and things like that. And so I think part of it is just who I am. Um, and I've learned a lot of skills and coping skills and been through my own therapy enough to, um, not let it be debilitating. Mm -hmm. Um, but I do think it kind of becomes a little bit a part of your, your characteristics of what makes you, you and what makes you tick. And so, yeah, I would say anxiety has been something that I've, I've overcome throughout my life for sure.
0: Awesome. Well, tell us what anxiety is. So, you know, we talk about it as clinicians all the time, but you know, what is to you, what would be, what is anxiety?
1: To me, anxiety is, it's a human emotion. It is an alarm in our brain that alerts us to the potential risk or discomfort of a situation. Um, it's the anticipation of something. And it's um, a level of un- uncertainty mm-hmm. and the need for control. And so I think what the pandemic has done is it's exposed Our addiction to predictability.
0: Mm, That's good.
1: And our um, desire to control outcomes and to be able to predict what's going to happen next. And I think the pandemic has unveiled that that's not reality. It's not real. Um, Things have been like an illusion of control Mm -hmm. about what's going to happen next in your life. And so while I do think anxiety has been tied to the actual medical components of the pandemic i think a lot of it is just about the fact we're not in control yeah as much as we thought we were or as much as we'd prefer to be
0: <laughs> yeah and <laughs> yeah, that's good addicted addiction to prediction yes yeah that's good
1: that's right and just that our kids are going to go to school you know for a certain amount of time or that they're going to be able to do this or that or that we can travel and those things just you know we're taken out from underneath of us so i think um you know, the, the Institute of Mental Health says that one in five adults have a diagnosed anxiety disorder, but that research was pre-pandemic. I think it would be probably even higher. Mm-hmm.
0: Well, we yeah, I think uh, some of the new polls are showing like a 19% increase in college freshmen with diagnosable anxiety. Yes. And then we know that, I mean, whether we do the research on it or not, if, if we have this 200% increase in self-harm for 13 to 14, or what is it? Uh, thirteen to eighteen year old kids or whatever it's like well, that's anxiety I mean it's mm. trying to control use your body and self harm to control you know an anxiety that's underneath everything that then gets released when you hurt yourself it's it's a crazy mix, but yeah, the reality is is that we know that anxiety is at the root of that self harm right, and so if that's increased, then anxiety' has had to have increased, yeah, but again, I think part of the problem is people don't know what anxiety is or what the details of it are, and so yeah, if you give somebody a checklist and say, "Are you anxious?" If it's what they've always felt, right, they're gonna say no, mm. right? Yes. It's like if if it's like when people um, take medication for the first time, they always lots of times they're like, "I feel really sluggish. I feel like a robot." And it's like, "Well, no you you just feel like the rest of people who aren't at a ten at all times." Yes. You know, and it gets you got to slow down and get used to being slowed down. But you you sometimes that anxiety is that positive coping where it's like, or negative coping where it's like, well, I know what this feels like. And so I'm in control of this, Mm -hmm. but slowing down now I'm like, I can't even get anxious. And that weirds me out.
1: Being more comfortable in chaos. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I think too, when we talk about anxiety, there's two components, there's the thought process and the cognitive piece of anxiety. And then there's a physiological response. There's a nervous system. And Mm -hmm. so, um, important in both kids and adults is that, Um, our, our thought process, our cognitive thinking is worst case scenario, planning the worst things that could happen and, um, analyzing things and that level of work that we do with anxiety. But then there's also, um, the nervous system, the sweating hands, the heart beating fast, the knots in your stomach. And Mm -hmm. I think it's important to acknowledge, especially with kids that when you are alerted to potential risk or discomfort, your body goes into fight, flight or freeze. And when your body's ready to fight or flight or even freeze, it tenses up. Mm-hmm. So even your stomach, which is a muscle, contracts. And so that's why you may feel sick to your stomach um, when you get anxious because your body is responding in a physiological way to, to thoughts that you're having. Mm-hmm. So um, while we do the work to do the mental gymnastics of the cognitive piece to be able to control your body and your nervous system, it's kind of a two-part two part thing.
0: Yeah, they're connected. And we I think... You know, it's kind of a new thought, and what we're trying to open people's eyes to is to look at yourself holistically and see how your body is affected by your trauma, and your trauma affects your body. And I remember being a kid, and my grandmother was the um, the head secretary at the elementary, and I would have to go home every day to use the bathroom, and then mm-hmm. she would give me my Lana. So eventually, I got an irritable bowel syndrome disorder diagnosis, and I was taking Prilosec and all this stuff. And now mm-hmm. I look back, I'm like, I was anxious because right. my parents were divorcing, you know, and when I was eight. Right. But like no one ever named that. You know no. it, was a, it was a physical issue. Right. it was going to be treated by my doctor and by, you know, medication. And, and now I'm like, well.
1: <laughs> yes. They're so intertwined.
0: Yeah.
1: Right. I mean, that's why when people say they're having an anxiety attack, that they feel like they're having a heart attack. Right. They go to the emergency room because it is so <clears> physical. <throat> and people say it's just in your head. Well, no, it's not. It's in your body as well. Mm-hmm. And it feels very, very real. And it starts in your head but even when you get your mind and your thought under control, your body's still reacting. And so that's a separate piece to try Mm -hmm. to calm it down.
0: Yeah. So what, what are some, uh, what does anxiety look like specifically in children? Like, so you mainly, yeah, you didn't mention the play therapy stuff, but oh
1: yeah. So I guess I do play therapy. I work with kids. Um, I do trauma focused CBT, which is, I think five to 12 is what that specializes in. Uh, I work with adolescents. I do EMDR, CBT, things like that. Um, so play therapy is one treatment option for kids but what you ask what it looks like in kids i mean so first of all some part of anxiety is developmentally appropriate right like separation anxiety from ages six months to nine is what we consider developmentally appropriate the Mm -hmm. fact that kids are separating from a loving and attuned caregiver um, is important in their development their you know, developing object permanence, so that when something they don't see it, it still exists, and so um, they experience this anxiety. And so that's what it looks like at the beginning of life from six to nine months. But what it looks like in kids as they get older, um, you know, the typical things like um, fingernail biting, lip biting, um, shyness can be an example of anxiety avoidant behaviors, refusing to do things, but it also can look like aggression mm-hmm. and irritability, sleeplessness, um, hypervigilance. Um, and so What's hard to answer about that question is it's unique to each child, right? We have to know our own kids and we can tell when they're getting anxious and how they respond differently than they normally would if they weren't, um, feeling that vigilant.
0: Yeah. And so how much is that as a choice? So like, a lot of times I see parents who are like, well, just stop doing that, essentially. Sure. You know, so how much of that is a zero to five-year-old, zero to seven-year-old, even eight, nine, ten-year-olds choice?
1: Um, I would say it's it's a response. And so we can choose our response in some way, but it's meeting some kind of need. So mm-hmm. saying don't do that isn't fixing the problem, right? It's just wanting them to do it in a different way mm-hmm. and so saying stop bite your lip stop on your lip stop picking out your lip um that doesn't fix what they're nervous about it's just the way they've chosen to cope with it um and you know picking out your lip doesn't always have to be anxiety too it can be a sensory input it can be um so it's hard to differentiate and so you have to kind of know your kid and know mm-hmm. how they respond to things so i'd say it wasn't it's not not a choice in that way
0: yeah it's good yeah what should a parent say when they see their kid doing something anxious, like biting like, their nails, picking their lip, besides stop doing that right, so
1: besides stop doing that, but <laughs> isn't super helpful. It's trying to get to the root of what they're feeling, so you might point it out like i notice I notice you're picking your lip, is there something that's bothering you? What are you feeling in your body? Um, I think one of the practices as parents, we should get in the habit of doing is, um, what's called body scans, mm-hmm. right? So like at night, if we just say, where do you feel the stress in your body? You know, there's different techniques. There's progressive relaxation, there's, um, guided imagery and things like that. But body scans for a, even just a toddler, tell me where you're feeling your stress yeah. because the more they can connect that they're using their finger to pick at their lip makes them feel more calm in some way. Um, That's a control thing, right? Mm -hmm. To be able to to do a certain behavior over and over again, to feel a sense of control. Um, The the faster we can help them label that, the more empowered they feel to kind of overcome that behavior, I would say.
0: Right, so it starts with, um, for those of us with little bitty kids like me and you, it starts with teaching those habits and developing those neuropathways and those things early, early on. Right. You know that letting them learn about their emotions, um, letting them learn about what they feel, then being able to express what they can do, giving them resources to find what fits their body, what fits their personality, you know, so that we can figure it out with them. Right. Instead of just giving them a treatment to fit a behavior, we're trying to say, who is this kid, and how can we resource them so they can be responsible for their own deescalation eventually.
1: Right. Yes, that's the goal—to equip them point those things out, not in a shaming way, mm-hmm. right? Because if you shame them out of a behavior, it just feels like I can't feel this way. Mm-hmm. Instead, of you do feel this way, what do we do about it right. with that support? But how anxiety looks different in kids, what I see in my office is that, um, you know, kids don't have a fully developed prefrontal cortex. And so as adults, we have irrational thinking all the time, but we can balance it with adaptive thoughts, with um, thoughts that are true. And we have the capacity to do that. Um, with fully developed brains but kids they don't yet have that capacity the fullest so if they're thinking irrationally they can't just access their prefrontal mm-hmm. cortex and decide um, that that's not logical that doesn't make sense um and they're just
0: when if they're zero to four they don't even really have a left brain right yeah
1: yes and so our expectation that they would just think logically about something is not realistic
0: <laughs> Yeah, <You know, laughs> that's great i'm like why would you do that and as i hear it coming out of my mouth i'm like oh because your brain is like you
1: know yes not there yes because you don't know what you're doing they don't know what they're doing and um yeah to shame it's not going to be not going to be helpful
0: <laughs> although we want to say those things
1: of course we do yes because why would you do that right like that doesn't make any sense to our adult brains mm-hmm. um, but to their brains they're just experimenting with what's going to happen and it's a level of cause and effect that that bridges that gap between emotional and logical and um that's kind of their job to figure that out at that age
0: yeah, I think a lot of that increase in anxiety for kids too is we have a lot more anxious parenting. Mm. You know, there's a lot of fear um, that's come over us in the last ten years, twenty years. You know, for a long time, I think parents just didn't even pay attention to their kids. You know, there was just you know, not that they didn't love them, and they didn't care about them, but they they were too busy trying to survive and make an income and keep the house together. And then we got into kind of entertainment and culture, and and especially in America, things have gotten. We've become more luxurious in the things that we can do and the time that we have to just chill out and relax, and that's actually created more anxiety because now there's more things to fear, more things to focus on, um, for adults, and then so how does how does an adult anxiety so like let's say an anxious parent how does that affect the child?
1: Well, back to, I mean back to what you're saying about society and you know now that we have social media and um, mass. Communications. We know every bad thing that's ever happened to every kid everywhere, right, all the time. Mm-hmm. And so as parents, we no longer have to imagine the horrible things that can happen to kids. It's just um, blasted all over our news feeds or whatever it is. And so I think more than ever, we have access to the things that are statistically very unlikely to happen, but because we see pictures and we feel connected, um, it feels more likely. And so I think that does feed our anxiety as parents. But how it impacts our parenting is... As anxious parents, we raise anxious kids Mm -hmm. because uh, we say, don't touch that, don't do that, don't do that, you'll fall over, you'll get hurt, and that teaches them that nothing is safe. Mm -hmm. And so it feeds and it develops those neural pathways that I need to be cautious at all times. And then when they grow up to be cautious, we feel confused, even though we've been encouraging them to be cautious as kids, you know, their whole life.
0: Yeah. So what's the balance? Like, because what I know of you is that you're not saying don't tell your kids something's unsafe, Mm -hmm. but how do you balance that? So like, are there healthy risks that kids should be taking that we should be allowing?
1: Sure. Um, And it doesn't mean, I think, monitoring and intervening when necessary, but not alerting them to every scared thought that you have, Mm -hmm. right? Like we could watch them and say, this could happen, this could happen, this could happen. Um, like if they're jumping over rocks in a river, you instead of saying "Be careful, you might fall in," like obviously that's a potential, but saying "Do you notice that rock? Do you notice the river? Like, what are you thinking about this?" and help them gauge their own ability to be cautious and not just instill your catastrophic thinking right into their brain.
0: Especially if it's a level where they're not going to die, you yes, know, or they're not going to get really maimed or injured. Yes. You know? So if they're just, you know, wanting to walk on a plank or like my kids love to climb up on the swing set, Mm -hmm. you know, it's like within a hundred times, what what cues me into this as I'm thinking about it. So Jude, my three and a half year old, he like climbs this whirly thing at the school. I would never let him do that if it was on my terms, Mm. but then I get there and I see him doing it and he's never hurt himself. And I didn't even know he was capable of it, but like seeing him up there, I'm terrified. And they're like, Oh, he does that every day. You know what I mean? But it's like, that's our, our own anxiety and our own protection. And sometimes we can hold them back because we're too worried about it ending in catastrophe. Right. When the likelihood is they can easily climb that thing and it's fine.
1: And I would say, um, if you're going to say, be careful up there, but it's not actually going to change, you know, if they're unsafe enough where you have to say, get down from there, you're not doing that, then that's worth intervening about. Mm -hmm. But if you're just sharing (laughs) your anxiety about the situation, be careful. That doesn't actually make them more careful, typically. Mm-hmm. That's just you expressing your own feelings about the situation. Yep. So I have to double check my own thoughts when I say, is this my own anxiety or is what I'm sharing actually helpful to help them navigate a potentially dangerous situation, which yeah. obviously we want to avoid.
0: Right, and you can say, if you need my help, let me know. Yep. And there's other things you can do besides, be careful, that's dangerous, watch that. Yeah. Yeah,
1: helping them notice on their own instead of pointing those things out to them can be helpful.
0: What else? So that's directly at the child, but like, what are some other things that I think maybe anxious parents pull over on, you know, to pass on to anxious kids?
1: Uh, I think our need for reassurance, Mm. right? I think when kids ask, what if, what if, what if this happens, sometimes we entertain that. Um, And when kids ask, what if, what they want is certainty, right? They want a certain answer. And we actually cannot provide that in most cases. Um, and so...
0: Like, what if you die? Right. That's what Grady's asking me all the time. Well, if you die, who am I going to live with? And he's mm. been doing that a bunch lately.
1: Yes. And so, as a parent, it's our natural tendency to want to... Um,
0: That's not going to happen. Right.
1: <laughs> to, dis- to dismiss what a reality could be and to dismiss the anxiety because we don't want them to feel uncomfortable or mm. suffer... or or feel any sort of discomfort at all. And so if that thought brings him discomfort, then we need to erase that thought from your mind, Mm -hmm. right? We need to not acknowledge that or see it as a potential outcome. And that doesn't set kids up well to handle stress in the future.
0: Well, it builds no resiliency either. Right. You know, because it's like, and I get it. I don't want my kids to suffer. I think that's something right now that I, I struggle with. It's like that instinct of, make everything comfortable and everything fine and everything happy. And that'll mean mm-hmm. a successful life. Right. You know, I know what I with what we do, that that's not true, but I still feel it.
1: Yes. Well, they call that nowadays, they call that snow plowing, <clears throat> snow plowing parenthood. It's different than helicoptering because we're just snow plowing any obstacle out of their right. way. And how do we, how do we build resiliency? Well, resiliency requires struggle, struggle. And how do we allow our kids to struggle and not feel horrible about that you know of course we're not putting them in dangerous situations where they're gonna have really hard lives I had a client say I had a really hard life and this kid has a really great life but they're still anxious so what do I do about that I can't make them tough like I had to be you know growing up and so um, I think resiliency when you don't fail You don't learn how to bounce back from failure or from stress. And so how do we create opportunities in our home where they can fail, right? Mm -hmm. Like play your kids in board games and beat them, (laughs) right? Like don't let them win every game.
0: Right. Um, Oh, you mean they might throw a fit and you might have to teach them some emotional regulation and right or some responsibility and you can't throw all that at your sister. Yes. Yeah.
1: And that's why we,
0: but that takes time, Kelsey.
1: It does. It slows (laughs) us down. This takes a lot of work. It slows us down, and to beat our kids at a game, like, oh, well, they're going to be sad about that.
0: They're going to think I don't love them.
1: But also, the alternative is that we teach them that they can win every game, <laughs> and that's not life.
0: And then when they do finally lose, what's going to happen?
1: Yes. Yes. And so I think when kids lack resiliency, um, they also lack st- self-esteem, right? So, like, what, what I see in my office is kids with low self-esteem is because they've never had to do anything on their own. Mm. And so when they do something the first time and fail, they feel like I can't do anything. And that's just not the case.
0: Yeah, There's a lot of pressure on that one moment. Yes. Instead of slow incremental failures and successes and bouncing back and figuring out how to navigate your imperfections. and Right. Yeah, it's good.
1: Yeah. I mean, you, you can let your kid fail a spelling test in elementary school because the consequences of that are not substantial, right? So if we can teach them to and bounce, fail and bounce back... Uh, when they get to high school and they get to adulthood with things that and not that those things don't matter because they matter very much to a kid and you can validate that but it doesn't feel as consequential from a parenting perspective of what's going to happen if they fail at a young age
0: yeah and there there goes the anxious parent right it's like well if you fail this one spelling test in third grade you're not going to get into Harvard
1: (laughs) right but also it bounces back to why do we why do we do this why do we snowplow for our kids well because our our Um, perspective has shifted that our kids behavior is a reflection of us Mm. and that's not true that's a new philosophy that's a new way of saying things and so if my kid fails then I failed
0: and new by you mean like 50 years right yeah
1: like the idea that parenting is that your kids behavior is a reflection of how well you did at parenting Um, kids are their own people and it's our job to steward them and um you know, hone in on their skills, but also if they fail, you're not a failure. Nope. If they mess up, you're not a failure. And, um, if that's your mindset that if my kid fails and I'm a failure, then of course we're never going to let them fail. And that's problematic.
0: Yep. That's good. I said the other day to somebody, I said, they were talking about this and they were debating and I said, well, Adam and Eve had perfect parents Mm. and they still chose sin and brokenness and failure. Yep. And that's not a reflective of an imperfect God. So even if you are a perfect parent, like I tell myself that all the time, even if I do all the therapeutic things, right? Grady and Jude are going to have to work out their own stuff. Your kids are going to have to work out their own stuff. And yep. man, that's a relief for me. Right. I mean, it holds myself to a standard, but at the same time, like it helps me to realize that I, I don't have to have this crazy expectation. Right. Because then that's inauthentic. Yep. Right. And so when we're parenting from an inauthentic way, we're not being true. And our kids know that too, which actually then leads to anxiety. Because if I'm always walking around like this perfect Christian dad who does everything perfectly right and I'm always right and never wrong and you just need to listen to me, that's something that they feel like they need to measure up to. Mm -hmm. And they know they can't. So then every failure is something that that separates them from me, that breaks down our attachment. And Mm -hmm. if I'm supposed to be their primary attachment figure who they feel safe with, who they can bring failures to, and it's enough and they're worthy and they're safe, then if, they're, if they can't do that, it's a huge mess. Right. And I see so much of that in our culture.
1: Yeah, the um, Harvard Institute of Child Development did a study that shows that um, the number one factor in building resiliency in your kids is relationship, which mm-hmm. is not surprising to us, right? That's, right. But as a society, it's not if you work harder if you criticize harder if you control more it's that they're connected and they feel safe to fail and mm-hmm. that's how you build resiliency is failure but you also have that unconditional love from a attuned caregiver
0: yeah there's a really good book um the coddling of the american mind mm. uh i can't think of the jonathan Haidt. he's a I think he's Canadian, um, but maybe not. He, anyway, he's a social psychologist, and he's Jewish. And it's the the research in the book is so good. He has another one, The Righteous Mind, Why Good People Argue About Religion and Politics. And mm-hmm. he, I love it because he's not a Christian, but so much. I mean, he's Jewish, so he believes in some of the similar things we do. But he dives into the science of it and just kind of parallels the same thing. And one of the things he talks about is that the 24-hour news cycle is what really amped up our anxiety is that, you know, John Bonnet Ramsey, these early kids got, you know,
2: mm-hmm. taken,
0: mm-hmm. or there was a murder, and we all started panicking. We're like, our kid can't go down the aisle at Target, can't go to the store. Oh. Well, at the same time, it was coming out of a culture who never supervised their kids, mm-hmm. and there were all these terrible things happening that no one ever found out about until they're in our offices and they're 45 and 50, and they're like, oh, yeah, I was sexually abused, or I was harmed, or I was this. Yeah. And I think we're in the middle in t- 2021 of like, this merging of those two worlds. Right. And then you insert technology. hmm You know, it's made it quite the mess.
1: Right. I think what goes hand in hand in um, the, the anxiety, the increased anxiety I see in my office is um, this increased idea of perfectionism. hmm And I heard recently something that stuck out to me, the idea that perfectionism does not make you perfect. It makes you feel constantly inadequate. Mm-hmm. And I was like, gosh, that's it, right? Because perfectionism, while it's our desire to do everything right all the time, doesn't actually achieve that. It just makes you feel feel inadequate. Because you can't.
0: Right. Yeah, you're not perfect.
1: Right, and so noticing how critical we are with our own kids, I mean, I would encourage you if you have kids to notice how many times you say, don't do that, don't do it this way. And not even for safety reasons, just because it's not your preference or how you would do it. And the language that we use, um, I mean, in my mind, I filter it through. If it's not unsafe and it's not unkind, if I just think it's annoying or not my preference or not how I would do it, I try to let it go, right? If it's just not how I, I think it should be.
0: Um, can you say those three things again?
1: If it's not unsafe, if it's not unkind. Um,
0: and it's just not your preference. If it's not my yeah.
1: preference, then just they can choose how to do it. Um, because I think that constant criticism and control and pushing our preferences on how we think kids should do things um, creates low self-esteem, and I think that leads to anxiety as well. So.
0: Yeah, definitely. I, I fight. The, I don't know about you, but I fight this battle. And I know yours are younger than mine, so they're not quite as opinionated yet. But. Mm. I fight this battle with Grady of like, I've built in him this ability to ask questions and have his own personal desires. <laughs> and sometimes it's like, I don't want you to have those. Right. <laughs> I just want you to do whatever I'm telling you without thinking, yes. you know, and sometimes I need him to, but that's very rare. Yes. When I stop and do what you just did, it's like, Oh yeah, I don't actually need you to do this right now in this way.
1: Right. Like the amount of times I get asked to bring a random object into the car. It's like, can I bring this with me? It's like, why like why would you need whatever it is the beach ball that was what was recently in the back of my car you know i want to bring this with me in the car okay it's not unsafe it's not unkind then sure you can you can choose to bring this it's not a battle worth fighting because we could we could fight battles all day long all day long about how we think things should be done um we just have to kind of choose those battles and that's how i kind of help filter what battles i'm going to choose
0: yeah so what what is typical versus problematic anxiety and so you know, all of us get anxious about whatever. Like, we both probably get a little anxious before we do the podcast. We, I get anxious before I speak. About five minutes before, I'll get really nervous. But that's not that doesn't become problematic for me. You get over it, and you kind of push through it. That you have that resiliency. So, how would somebody know if this is like just normal anxiety, or is there normal anxiety, and then uh, what's problematic?
1: Sure. So, I think what becomes problematic is um, when our reaction. To something that makes us anxious is disproportionate right it's too large it's and it's reoccurrent over mm. a long period of time like if you're going to start a new job or a first day of school like of course kids are going to be anxious things are new the risk or discomfort is they don't know anyone they feel awkward and um, they can be resilient and um kind of get through that but if Um, we would say when I worked at a school, if it was more than three or four weeks that they're refusing to come in the school, like that becomes problematic because then it's affecting their daily functioning Mm. and it's inhibiting them from going to school and learning and doing the things they need to be doing. So um, I would say if something persists over a long period of time, I think the DSM-5 says six months, but really it's whatever you're comfortable with dealing with, whatever's Mm -hmm. um, stopping you from living your life, Like I say, if kids, if they're afraid of thunderstorms, it's okay to be scared while a thunderstorm is occurring. If they're looking up the weather every day and they don't want to go outside because there's a 10% chance of thunderstorms, like when it starts to impact them not wanting to leave the house, them checking something every day, that starts to fall into the category of problematic because there's not a current threat. It's the anticipation of the potential of a very unlikely event. And that's what kind of Categorizes as um, problematic anxiety. Yeah,
0: we talked about this the other day about how many kids are scared of like thunder and, and, you know, so again, what's not helpful is to say, don't be scared. Sure. Right, so what is helpful?
1: Well, if they're asking questions like, what if, what if a tree falls on my house? What if a tornado comes through? The most helpful thing is to say, what do you think about that? Right, because again, when they're asking you a what if question, they're wanting some sort of certainty and we don't have that we can't guarantee a tree is not going to fall in the house. Is it, is it likely? Probably not. But when we put the question back on them, we're no longer fueling this need for reassurance. We're creating the ability for them to challenge their own thinking and also give them the tools to cope with the fear that is appropriate during a storm, but not um, create the, the reassurance that we provide to be dependent on what we say.
0: Mm-hmm. So let's talk about appropriate fear. So what, what's normal anxiety so or because I think especially as Christians I think people are like oh you shouldn't fear Mm. you know so I I always I think we said this the other day but it's like if you're in the woods and you're hiking with your family and there's a grizzly bear or you see a a cub come out of the trail like you better be afraid right like Mm -hmm. it it lets you know like you said in the very beginning it's a feeling that cues you into there's going to be a problem I'm anticipating a problem and I need to do something about that. Yep. So why isn't that a problem? And how do we relate that to? Don't be afraid.
1: Well, I think, you know, I guess God created us with this system, this alarm, this amygdala in our brain that fires when there's um, risk. And so if you see a bear and they're coming, they're coming out. Um, we need to do something. We need to f- fight, flight, or freeze <laughs> um, to survive, right? And so the the idea of anxiety, it protects us. It serves a purpose. It's not all negative. Um, it's there to keep us safe. Um, it's there to, yeah, try to protect us. It's when it controls us that mm-hmm. it becomes problematic. And so, in the moment, to have a feeling of fear, I don't think is what, I don't think is what we need to avoid. I think it's the anticipation that every time I go into a woods, there's going to be a bear that comes out. Oh, that's good because that's very unlikely. <laughs> right. Um, but in our mind, if we're preparing for worst case scenario, I mean, you could think of every vicious animal that's in the forest all the time, but is that going to ruin your walk in the woods? Probably. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It has mine before. The first time I took my kids for a walk, I was like, I never had ever thought about any danger in the woods. And then I was just like, are there wolves in Louisiana? Like, (laughs) like I went down this whole thing, like what dumb thing did I just do? Yep. You know, like, and that, I think as a parent, again, we have to self-regulate and mm-hmm. not just like, all right, let's get out of here. You know, there's bears. Yep. Yeah, there are bears, but the unlikely it's very unlikely that a bear would come and attack us randomly in the woods.
1: Yes. And also, um, I think us preparing for that is an illusion of control, mm. right? Because um, if you and your mind have prepared for the bear to come to attack you, you think you know what you're going to do mm-hmm. and you are prepared in your mind. And that re- that gives you some sort of control over the situation that some situations we just don't have, we just don't have control over.
0: Oh man. That's that, that spreads out to so many things in our culture right now. Yes. Yeah. Like yeah. we, uh, we always talk about as military guys and some guys that I've talked to, we were talking about uh, concealed carry. And again, I don't have a stance on guns or whatever, but, um, but people, if they've never been in the military, and they shoot at a target and they practice and they're like, Oh yeah, I carry my gun so that if the shooting happens in the school or the shooting happens in the theater, I'll be prepared. Mm-hmm. And it's like, you don't know what would happen or what you would be capable of unless you've been in that situation. And there's a Navy SEAL quote that says, uh, most people don't, uh, when the, when the stuff hits the fan, most people don't know where where the fan is. Mm. And I love that he did not say stuff, but the, <laughs> the, uh, um, the the point is for all of us is we can be prepared as po- as much as possible. But yeah, unless you're in the moment, unless your kid comes with this crisis, unless they're hurt and they break their leg, unless you don't know what you're going to do, right? And so, it actually is freeing to go. I'll do the best I can, but I'm not going to know exactly what to do. Yep. And be able to predict it.
1: Right. And you can only handle what comes when it comes, right? Like you have to just. Be flexible and open minded in that way and not desire that kind of control to be able to predict things. Again, that's the the addiction to predictability. I
0: love that. That's such a good quote. that. Yeah. We need to make a shirt. Addiction to prediction. <laughs> uh okay, so how so our goal is to not be anxious parents, mm-hmm. which obviously means, you know, and you can listen to all of our podcasts for this, but like, you know, do your own work. figure out why you're anxious get past the symptoms of the body and the emotions and the you know the control or whatever coping mechanism you have to deal with your anxiety and get to your own root causes Yep. so that you can start to see what you're projecting onto your kids yep so if you do that work and you figure that out what are some ways that we can teach kids kind of healthy emotional regulation
1: sure so I talk about when we when we have kids, what we need to teach them is they need to know the language for feelings, right? They need to know the words, happy, sad, scared, you know, but there's so many, right, disappointed. And I have, you know, my three-year-old will tell me, I feel disappointed, right? I wanted something to go one way, it went another way, and so you're disappointed. And there's something about labeling that that gives us a sense of familiarity. Like I've I've dealt with this before because feelings for kids are just whole body sensations. I mean, for like adults, they're like that too, but that's why they look like a fish out of water when they're having a tantrum on the floor is because it's just, it's a whole body experience. Head to toe, toe, the whole feeling, right? And they're big and they're loud. And um, that's because their nervous system It's figuring it out. It's when they're angry, their whole body is angry, right? They can't hide that. I think as adults, we learn to hide that. Mm -hmm. We learn to mask that um, for social reasons, (laughs) for social consequences, but kids, they haven't quite learned that yet. And so we get to see it. And so that is an opportunity to be able to point out, hey, I see you doing this. It means you're feeling this way. And so I had a parent ask me, how often are you doing that? I'm like, probably like 30 times a day Right? I'm saying, you look mad, you look sad, you look happy, you look excited, you look proud of yourself. Oh, your body's feeling hyper. Oh, your body's feeling overwhelmed. You know, Giving them the language to connect the dots between what their body is experiencing and what's going on um, can give them a sense of empowerment, really. So the language of feelings is really important. And then being able to identify their own feelings so they can connect the dots. And then um, part of that comes with being able to identify the feelings of other people, right? Look at other kids and see, oh, they're, they're crying, they're screaming, they must be feeling that way. And then to be able to accept that feeling and validate it and just accept it in their own body and not fight it. And then to communicate it to us. And then after they communicate, we can support with the next step, which would be coping. But for us to think we're gonna skip from feeling to coping is just unrealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, because their, their limbic system is their, on their brain is on fire and they're not even able to reach the front of their brain where they would make any logical decisions. And so we have to calm them down before they can think clearly about anything. Yeah. And so it should never be to teach them in those moments um not to do that or why we shouldn't do that because if they're worked up about something they're not even hearing you
0: Mm -hmm. yeah it's so true yeah and i think that and we know this as far as trauma responsive care it's like that's really how all adults are too yeah no one who's worked up and emotional at past a level is listening or to learn right you know their left brain's turned off and their right brain's on yeah and uh And yet we just try to teach and be logical in these moments of emotional things because we don't want them to do it again. I think that's the other insane thing is that we think we're going to create these little robots who just never have any bad behaviors. And, you know, it's like, this is inconvenient. I really don't want to deal with this right now. So let me teach you how not to do this so I never have to deal with this again. Right. And it's like, oh, that's not
1: And their their behavior is reflective of them being a kid right it's not reflective of you it's not reflective of the decision it's just that's what kids do Mm -hmm. they're feeling they're figuring out how they feel about things and so um yeah to expect them to be able to cope right away we just we have to be able to teach them how to calm down so they can think straight we can't go straight towards thinking straight
0: and if we miss that step then we create really anxious adults who don't know how to regulate Yes, I posted, you saw it, but I posted this thing about we're using this generational mindful corner and we're working on that with Juden Grady. And, um, and I had so many people say, Oh man, I need that closet too. You know, yes. people message me, PM me at different things and ask me questions or what books or whatever. And so many people are like, I don't, I don't know how to do that. Mm-hmm. Like I have no clue how to, you know, to say what I feel, give myself a task to do, De you know, deescalate and then talk about what I want to do differently and how I feel now. Right. <laughs> you
1: know? Which how, how on earth can we expect that of our kids then? Yeah. I mean, that's the thing about it. And I, I recognize that in myself that it's a constant battle to be regulated because we cannot regulate kids as unregulated adults. Nope. And so, um, the first step is recognizing your own, your own stuff and being able to calm down. I mean, I have to walk away from situations more than once a day where I, if I know what I'm going to do is not helpful I just have to walk away and come back to it yeah because what I want to teach is is it requires modeling it if I can't just say be calm be calm right like that's not going to work because I'm saying it first of all in the most uncalm tone uh, but that doesn't we don't jump from oh okay now I'm calm now thanks mom that was helpful <laughs> I wish
0: I wish it would Some yeah day. Like, we have to get out of this house if you don't calm down.
1: Yes. And so to be able to model, like, mom's a little worried about this, mom's a little stressed about this, Um, and this is what I'm going to do about it, right? I'm not saying share your emotions with your kids and make it their problem, Mm -hmm. right? Because it's your job to deal with your own emotions. I think when you just tell your kid you're stressed because you want them to make you feel better, like, that's inappropriate and not helpful. But to say, like, I'm stressed about this, and so I'm going to turn on some music. I'm going to drink a glass of ice water. I'm going to go step outside. I'm going to go take a break. I mean, we have to verbalize that Mm -hmm. if we want our kids to, to grasp, because sometimes when we say, I just want to pretend I'm not anxious all the time. First of all, the message that sends is that don't be anxious, which is unrealistic, um, but it also sends a message that it's not okay to be anxious, which is also problematic. Um, so to be able to share in appropriate increments with kids how you're feeling and how you're going to handle it. But that requires you knowing how you how you feel and how you're going to handle it, which may be the first step if you're wondering what to do next with your kids.
0: Mm-hmm. That's good. Yeah, because if you can't emotionally regulate yourself, if you don't know why you feel what you feel, then you can't communicate to them any healthy ways of coping. And so you just typically what I see is people just avoiding it altogether, right. you know. Yeah. And then that gets into the behavior modification, which then teaches them that their worth and value is in how they perform and how they, you know, please you. And then that actually breeds way more anxiety than just dealing with the problem.
1: Right. Right.
0: That's good. All right. So that's how to teach them emotional regulation. So there's all that. And and you covered a little bit about perfectionism prob- you know, being problematic, but anything you want to touch on with that?
1: I don't think so. I think we covered just... The idea that our criticism is going to breed perfectionism, and that breeds low self-esteem, and that causes anxiety. So to check our own criticism, I think, is the message there.
0: Yeah. So mindfulness. So we talked about that a little bit. Um, One of the things that I think about is uh, with Scripture, it always talks about wisdom. And I relate wisdom to insight, which then I relate to mindfulness. So Mm -hmm. follow me for a second. So wisdom in scripture is about being wise being able to look into yourself being able to know who god is know who you are know who other people are and then for us we would call that insight like being able to stop and go what do i feel right now and why Mm -hmm. um and so when i think of mindfulness i think of that's what being mindful is is like being able to take all that in and pause and just kind of like pay attention to what i'm doing yeah does that make sense yeah, it does. So what, why is that, well, number one, we have to know how to do that, but why is that so important for children to learn to be mindful of their selves, of their surroundings?
1: Well, I think it switches us from having our emotions control us to us being in control of our emotions. I think mindfulness is the switch there. I think we, we want to move from being reactive to responsive, and there has to be like a breath there. There has to be a space um, because reaction is quick right it's what we its our first instinct mm-hmm. which is often not helpful <laughs> and so
0: absolutely yes
1: and so what
0: or at least modern
1: i mean all of us all humans it's what we want to do in a reactive state is not often the most helpful thing so mindfulness is a breath it's it's figuring out what's going on in your own brain in your own body and that sensation or that um that does give us a sense of control. And especially when you're anxious, when you feel out of control or helpless, being mindful helps combat some of those ideas because it puts you back in the driver's seat of your own emotions and they aren't just happening to you. They're happening in your own body and you get to decide how you respond to things Mm -hmm. in that moment.
0: So what are some ways people can either be mindful themselves or teach their kids to be mindful?
1: so i think it takes the work of identifying your own beliefs your own belief system um i think again being familiar with your own body and what it does and like as i'm getting ready for the podcast yesterday i'm like kind of tossing and turning last night couldn't fall asleep i wasn't necessarily thinking about the podcast per se but in my body somewhere there's a stress of oh i have to go and record this thing and i'm (laughs) nervous about it and um I have to know my own beliefs. So if I well, what's the risk or discomfort of me going on a podcast? Well, I would say something dumb, and that would mean that I'm dumb, right? If I said something dumb, that some said something I didn't mean or said something wrong, that that would mean that I'm not good enough, not good enough at my job, not good enough to communicate what I know or that I don't know enough, and. I can combat that negative belief that I'm not good enough with adaptive information, right? I know that because if I say something I don't mean on a podcast or if I don't communicate exactly what I wanna communicate, that that doesn't make me a bad therapist. It doesn't make me a bad person. And so it challenges some of those beliefs that, you know, if you're feeling anxious about something, it's probably fueling this fear that I would be not good enough, Mm -hmm. right? That would be mine in this situation. This fear that I'm not good enough And really when I get to the end of this, like that doesn't get to determine if I'm good enough, but that's after counseling, right? That's after doing my own work. That's after um, recognizing those beliefs and having enough um, thoughts in my head to be able to combat that with truth. And so...
0: And it's not that you don't have that struggle. Right. It's that you have tools and you're aware of what that struggle is for you.
1: Yep. And it makes it faster.
0: (laughs) Absolutely faster.
1: The more you process it, the more you practice okay, I'm feeling like I'm feeling restless. I'm feeling, I'm feeling like I can't sleep. Well, that means I'm anxious. And what am I anxious about this podcast? And that, you know, if I mess up, I'm not good enough. Well, is that true? No. Okay. Then go to bed. Right. So the, the more you do that, the faster you get. And it makes the risk of the situation dissipate because the risk is no longer that you would be not good enough. Mm -hmm. It just means you make a mistake, which is no big deal. Right. In the scheme of things. Um, so
0: that's inside you and that's internal. What are some external things, I'm thinking relationally, that also help to speak that truth into your life?
1: Right, like friends, Mm -hmm. friendships, people, you, before we go, you don't care what I say, right? Just tell people that you know, you know what you're talking about. And so um, I think our community, the people we surround ourselves with, scripture, I think um, speaks truth into our lives, like in a lot of ways that we can you know just get people around us who i have friends who if they listen to this podcast they're gonna think it's the greatest thing they've ever heard because mm-hmm. they know me and that's they don't care what i say
2: they love you yeah
1: yes and it could be it could go horribly wrong because that's a potential outcome and they would still love me right and so i have friends that speak truth and speak encouragement and um yeah i think that externally kind of combats some of those thoughts too
0: right so we need you said scripture so one of the things I find helpful for kids, even, even starting to contextualize for parents is, is to, if they're having a feeling or a negative belief, right? So our, our negative beliefs shape our thoughts and feelings, which shape our actions. So I think, you know, anxiety is an action. It's a symptom of those thoughts and feelings and then a belief. It's like, then we need to find some truth, right, in the word and, and kind of meditate on that and read on that and be mindful of that. Um, and I think our kids can start doing that early on.
1: Yes. Um I think when we talk about scripture, you know, I know we kind of discussed this too, you know, scripture says do not fear. Mm-hmm. It says that over and over and over again. And what does that mean? Mm-hmm. Um I think you know, it tells us not to fear because God wants something better for us than fear, but how do we how do we combat that? How do we deal with that? Well, it's not to pretend like worry doesn't exist of course there's a level of worry that exists in the world especially as a parent Um, it calls us to overcome anxiety which I think we do by acknowledging it exists and going through it Um, I think to be able to like rest in the arm of Jesus with our anxiety and bring it to him and not just avoid it and pretend like we're not put up these walls Um, and if you don't face anxiety head on it comes out sideways especially in parenting Um, so to deal with it head on but there's a there's a level of anxiety associated with raising kids and there's a there's a alarm in our brain that alerts us to things to keep them safe but god's telling us there's nothing wrong god's not telling us there's nothing wrong right he's not telling us there's nothing wrong he's telling us everything could go wrong but i'm still here and i'm still good and i've got you and so we can acknowledge that everything could go wrong but he's saying i still have you and i'm still good and you can trust me and you can give your worries to me like i don't think i don't think when jesus was was weeping over lazarus it would have been really helpful for someone to knock on the door and be like knock knock you know i see you crying if you you know, I was reading scripture and it talks about fruits of the spirit and actually tells us like we should be joyful. And so if you could just wrap it up <laughs> right and be joyful, that would make all of that's us much so much more comfortable.
0: Uh, that's so good, Kelsey.
1: But that's that's not what that's not what it is with because without grief we don't know joy. Right? I mean that's I think what Jesus was teaching us in that moment. And without worry, we don't know peace. And if you don't acknowledge the worry that you have and go through it instead of just pretending you don't have it you won't know peace which mm-hmm. is the goal right that's what I think he's calling us to when he says don't be afraid is because he wants us to feel his peace but to just pretend it doesn't exist isn't going to get you there
0: no that's so good yeah avoidance is, a, is a, a huge process when dealing with trauma and dealing with our mental health and and we don't want to be uncomfortable and I think that's gotten way worse with the American, like we said earlier, like, yes. with the American life of everything is about comfort seeking. Everything is about immediate gratification. Yeah. Everything is about that dopamine drip of, I, I need, I feel bad, I feel anxious, I feel, good, I feel, you know, so I'm just going to escape by making myself feel better with these trivial, you know, instant gratification things. Right. And G- I mean, the whole, I mean, I think the whole ultimate goal of Christian life is deferring our reward. Mm-hmm is saying i'm probably not going to be able to get the most pleasure right now i'm probably gonna to have to deal with some pain and some uncomfortableness and i mean scripture even says that romans is talking about the whole earth is groaning and moaning for christ's return it's like but we don't have any room as christians to to groan and moan a little bit yeah like you can't you can't grieve that your dad has cancer you can't grieve that someone dies you can't grieve that you were abused as a child you can't grieve because god's good and so we supposed to just not fear and not be in pain and be at perfect peace and i don't yeah i'm with you that's not what jesus was talking about
1: yeah and i do think moving moving to the south down here it's been (laughs) it's been an interesting tell me about that to the experience of um what it means to fear god and parents have this belief that i need my kids to fear me Mm -hmm. and man i just think we miss it there because i think when we talk about fearing god in the old testament I think what that means is to recognize his power right to recognize that he's a powerful he's he's strong he um is perfect and so we should fear him because he's powerful but we miss the second hand of the story when jesus when he sent jesus to be with us and um that connection is what's important mm-hmm. right i think that's what that's what he did, he came down here for connection and to be among us and to be empathetic. And um, of course he's powerful and worthy of being feared, but when we feel connected to him, we feel safe. That's so good. And so um, I think the goal of parenting, if you want your kids to fear you, um, to know you're in charge, to know you're powerful or whatever you're after, but you aren't humbling yourself like Christ did to connect with them, to empathize with them and that looks like apologizing when you're wrong right to go back and make amends to getting on their level to being on the ground um, empathize empathizing with the things that they really care about if we're not humbling ourselves to that level then we mi- we miss half the picture i mean you could aim for kids to just fear you a lot of people do i know i know just do what i say
0: yeah and i think i mean that's that's a perfect tie into what we talked about earlier which was if you're making parenting all about you, then of course you're trying to force them to fear you in that way Mm -hmm. because you don't make any space for them. Yeah. You know, you don't make any space for them to grow and develop and, and to make mistakes. You don't make any space time wise. You know, where somebody else had messaged me about the closet and they're like, when do you have time for that? Mm -hmm. I'm like, you have to make time for it. I don't never have time for it. You know, my selfish brain's like, I do not have time for this nonsense. You know, like,
1: But we don't have time for their fits either. Right. And so let's just, just, just utilize what we've got.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. I mean, when we talk about, you know, one of the things at my house, it's putting on shoes, right? It would be so much easier if I could just put your shoes on every single time. But am I going to teach you to put your shoes on then? Well, no. But then what does that look like? Does that look like me just throwing her, her shoes and say, put them on? because she's gonna go straight to, I can't do it. Mm-hmm. I can't do it myself, I need help. And so what that transition looks like of not doing everything for them from the beginning is sitting down, coaching them through it, you've got it. What you do is you, you do this, you might be model it, you maybe do one shoe and then say, you try the other, you've got this. And then praising the process and not just the outcome. Good try, you're proud of yourself, right? That language is something I've shifted to is because I can say you're. I'm proud of you. There's nothing negative about that. But what I really want is for you to be proud of yourself. Yeah. Right? Because I could create a dynamic where you want me to be proud of you all the time, which of course I am. And of course I'm going to say, but ultimately I want you to decide that you're proud of yourself. And so I like to point that out when I see it in my kids, like, oh, you're proud of yourself. You did that all on your own and that's great. And um, I think that helping them and sitting with them and coaching them through verbally and giving them encouragement rather than just doing themselves, but that takes twice as long. And that's on me because if we need to be out the door in five minutes, I need to readjust my timeline of when I start getting them ready because they have no concept of time of getting out the door. And if we're rushing around, that's probably my fault.
0: Yeah, it, it is our fault. And it happens all the time. I'm letting them play and letting them destroy the upstairs or wherever, you know, and then I'm like, oh, yeah, we have five minutes to be, you know, wherever out the door. Yeah. And then I'm mad that they can't get it together. Right. You know, it's like, well, that's totally on old dad, you know, (laughs) (laughs) and then we have to take responsibility for that, Mm -hmm. you know, and there are times in life where that's just going to happen. Right. Something happens and you're like, we got to go. Mm-hmm. But again, I always say do the right thing seven out of ten times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, maybe eight out of ten if you can push it. But, you know, you, ha- you just be consistent enough to where those other moments of rupture are easy to repair. And you bounce back. And your kid's not thinking, oh, dad's going to yell. Oh, well, how's this going to go? Mm-hmm. They know how it's going to go. And when it's not like, man, I, I yelled at Grady. This is probably meant three months ago. Um, I don't think I've ever raised my, like, I usually will get dad voice and I'll raise my voice if it's dangerous or it's like, he's about to break Jude's neck on something or you know, mm-hmm. whatever. But I got really mad about something and I raised my, I yelled and, uh, and he kind of looked at me and then he went to the bed, like our bedroom. And then he was like, you've never yelled. That was being a bully that you've mm-hmm. never yelled at me like that. And I had just got pushed to my limit, you know? And, uh, and I sat there and I wanted to deny it, you know? And I was just like, no, you're right. No matter what you did, I should not have yelled. We don't yell that, you know, but I, I did, I did. And I'm sorry, you know, and he's like, it's okay. You know, but it was that it was cause it's not normal right. that he was shocked by it. You know, but you do, you get to this point where I'm like, I've done all the breathing. I've done all the thing. I've done all the mindful parenting. I've done, it. you're still not listening. And yeah. so do you want me to spank you and yell at you? I'm not going to do that. It's a, you know, that's not something we do, but it's like, at the end of the day, I don't know what else to do with you. And then I have to go, well, why am I trying to do something with him?
2: Yeah.
0: You know, like, I just need to be with him in these emotions. But then that fear comes in of, like, well, if you don't fix it and adjust it and force it and make him afraid of you, he's going to be a mass murderer at 18 or he's going to move out and, you know, smoke crack. Like, that's where we go. (laughs) Yeah. You know, it's crazy.
1: Yeah. And so to acknowledge that our kids are tiny humans deserving of love and respect they're their own people they have their own passion skills gifts that are separate from yours and to just foster that but also know that they're going to trigger some of your own stuff and the faster you can get at getting through that you mm-hmm. know the more successful you're going to be at, at handling their big feelings but it takes a lot of work it's not easy it I does certainly do not do it perfectly
0: so lastly, I don't do it perfectly either um, by any means. You know, I do think the more knowledge you have and the more work you do, then you do limit your damage. And I think that's really important for people to understand that you can be better than you are, that you can learn and you can grow. And and if you find yourself yelling all the time or being checking out on your phone or, um, you know, controlling or micromanaging or being fear based that. The first step is just stopping and acknowledging that that's true mm-hmm. and then instead of shaming yourself, figure out why that is that it happened mm-hmm. and then do some work around that because very quickly, six months, three months, you can change your behavior and change the whole your whole household.
2: Yeah
0: I mean we've seen it and we see it all the time. you know that parents have so much power and kids are so resilient that if you've gotten into bad habits, man, they'll forget about those bad habits just show some consistency for just a little while. I mean, they'll they'll totally change their behavior and shift.
1: And when I talk about being triggered by your kid's behavior, right, if you're, your kid spilled a glass of something and you become enraged, right, that is not a proportionate or reaction to a situation. And so you're being triggered by something, whether it feels like you feel helpless, you feel out of control, you feel there's something else that you feel that's deeper rooted than just that isolated incident Mm -hmm. and so to be able to recognize in yourself why is this so infuriating to me because it's likely not about your kid it's likely more about yourself and how that feeling makes you feel Mm -hmm. and your desire for control and whatever it is so um but our our kids shouldn't have to deal with that right that's our own to deal with
0: yeah and we we see that a lot in marriage you know mm-hmm. there's conflict in the marriage and then they bring that over into the kids or the kids try to triangulate and so one parent's trying to be the good guy and the other one's being the bad guy and we can do a whole podcast on that but mm-hmm. you know we that means that the parents the adults in the situation have no insight into them all, their own self yeah and they're not seeing the effects yeah but my encouragement would be you know get in therapy work on your own stuff I mean obviously get your kid in therapy if they need it so what what would therapy look like to help anxiety what would be kind of a typical thing that you you do with kids that are struggling with anxiety
1: yeah. So with kids, a lot of the time it looks like play therapy, especially, you know, like you would sit with an adult and talk verbally about their fears or, you know, kids can utilize play or expressive modalities with art and sand tray and things like that to express what we can easily speak about. So sometimes it looks like play therapy. Sometimes it does look like cognitive behavioral therapy um, included in, in play therapy, kind of mixing those two together to challenge any distorted thinking. Um, to um yeah really just understand their beliefs and you can do that the more you get trained on on um observing kids play to be able to point those things out so um I mean when I meet with kids I meet with parents first because I want to know what I'm walking into and then to meet with them to try to understand their anxiety and give them some coping skills I mean we'll often trace kids on this big paper that I have this big butcher paper we trace them we help them draw what happens in their body when they feel overwhelmed and just equip them to um, identify their triggers and develop coping skills that work for them and then kind of looping parents in and helping them partner with using that at home. Um, I would I typically meet with kids and then meet back with parents to see how I can support them because really the work, you know, I can be a support but the work is being done at home mm-hmm. too, so to make it um, to include the parents is important as well. But, yeah. I'd say if your kid is, is suffering with anxiety, that's um debilitating in some way or or stopping them from functioning or doing things that they love you know that they want to do but are feeling scared about then bringing someone in as an extra support is always is always helpful i would say
0: yeah definitely i've seen a lot of uh people you know a reduce their anxiety and their um fear symptoms when they feel you know it's such a weird trick it's like oh i'm going to do these unhealthy things to gain control when i could do the actual thing that you know gains control. I mean, I I think it would be the same thing medication. Medication's helpful, but it's still just treating the symptom Mm -hmm. most of the time.
1: Yeah.
0: And sometimes you need a little medication to help you get to the place where the therapy can work. Right. But if you're out there and you're listening and, you know, there are people around you and the first instinct is, well, we need to go to our pediatrician and, you know, he's struggling with anxiety, so let's just get him on some medication.
1: Yeah, and I think that when we – I typically say to parents when they're considering both that let's try counseling let's try some things because certainly there's a genetic component to anxiety, right? There's mm-hmm. some of us are, are born with, you know, I think brain scans are showing that the amygdala is often larger in, in people with in diagnosed anxiety disorders. Cause it's just, um, that's just genetically how they're just dis- pre-dispos- predisposed pre disposed there you <laughs> and you're, um, good, you're good enough. Kelsey. <laughs> Thank you. Appreciate yeah. that. Um, or even just like the the neurotransmitters, like the GABA, just like it's very innate in our being, in our genetics. And so of course medication would be helpful with some of those some of those um, things going on in the brain, but let's not chalk it up to that at the beginning, mm-hmm. right? Let's work on some things that we, we can control in our behavior and coping skills and allowing them to feel equipped and of course considering that later on. So that's typically what I say to parents when they bring kids in.
0: That's good. Yeah, we don't need immediate fixes and immediate gratification. We yeah. gotta take it a little slower and do it inside the you know the bounds of relationships and understanding who this kid is and what's going on and in the context and.
1: Yeah, I would say some resources that are helpful for parents. There's lots of good books out there. There's, I mean, Dave, David and the Worry Beast is a good one. Um, don't feed the worry bug. Ruby Ruby finds a worry is a good one. I think I am fine. We've talked about that one. A, yeah, good, a good grounding one. Yeah. one. Um, so all of those
0: books from I am fine. It's like, I am fine. I'm, you know, the, all those series is really good.
1: Very grounding. Yeah. Yes. Well, so, it's,
0: I can't remember the rest of them, but it's like, I'm fine. I'm good. I, You know, it's like they I'm have brave. a bunch of, yeah, they have a bunch of other books.
1: Yeah. That's a good series. So um, those are some books for resources for parents, but yeah.
0: Um, there was one thing I was going to say. As far as resources, um, you know, we'll put we'll put them up uh, on the link and people can find them. Um, But I think just, oh, the mindfulness app. What is that? Uh, Headspace. Mm It's a really good one. Mm -hmm. Um, And then if you have a teenager who's struggling with anxiety, I mean, I know I, I beat this dead horse a lot, but, you know, really look at how they're using their cell phone and how they're using social media, because I think, you know, that is killing us.
1: Right. The perfectionism part of that, the comparison game, I think it increases our anxiety, especially with teenagers. And I'd say what we experience as teenagers is completely different than what kids nowadays are are dealing with as far as comparison and social media. And so getting the support from a therapist would be probably really helpful because we can't relate. We did not have the same experience as adolescents to be constantly compared and judged based on things that we post and things like that. So
0: yeah, the unrealistic expectations are crazy. Well, this was super helpful. Any cover, anything you want to like cover, or that you feel like you didn't get to say that you'd like to say?
1: I think I always just like to say, you know, if you find one or two things that you're going to do differently from a podcast like this, this is not to say you need to do a one eighty. You need to do everything differently because those ideas I think make us feel like we're not good enough, uh-huh. and we are good enough because you've listened to a podcast on parenting kids with anxiety or or anxiety, like you want to get better and that's enough. Mm -hmm. Um, But to pick out a few things you want to try is, is a good way to start. I think to think you have to change your entire approach or that you've done it wrong. into this point, like we only can do what we do until we know better and then we go from there. And Mm -hmm. so it's not to bring any shame on how you've been doing things before, but just to encourage, encourage to try something different. So,
0: yeah, yeah I think that's super helpful uh, shame reduction is something we we're always trying to do as therapists is help people um, reduce their own feelings of inadequacy and I'm not good enough and I'm terrible and yeah and sometimes it's hard to listen to podcast I mean for me it's the same way it's like I read something or a new thing that I learned and I'm like oh my god I was reading something about the uh, polyvagal theory this week and it's a whole nother thing but it's like I didn't really know any, I mean, I knew somewhat about it. It makes sense in the context of all the trauma stuff I do know, but it's new. And then I'm like, oh, I need to read about this. And now I need to be an expert. And, you know, it's like, it's never, Cindy Willis and I always talk about that. It's like, there's all these certifications you want to get and you can't have it all and you can't know it all. And same thing as a parent, like you can only do the best you can in that moment. And so when we get overwhelmed with how much we have to do, sometimes we do nothing. And so I love that that you just pick up one or two things and, and start with them and, and then do it in, in community you have other people and go, Hey, can I have some accountability with this husband, wife? Can you, you know, hold me accountable to this thing and go yeah. from there? Yep. It's good. Thank you, Kelsey. Thank you. you. Did a great job.
1: I appreciate that.
0: You did. That was awesome. All right. If you need some resources, uh, look us up, com. You can find the podcast. You can, um, look at our therapist and, and then if you just need some help, um, You know, reach out, shoot us an email, uh, follow us on Facebook, Instagram, please subscribe and, you know, do all the things that you're supposed to do with podcasts. Um, God bless you and have a good week.